scripture lesson for today is from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and 17 and 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said unto him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The word of God for the people of God. Well, between uh, Julie's prayer and the singing from the choir, I think we can probably just go home. But I did prepare something, so I'm going to share a few thoughts before we leave. Will you pray with me? To love our God, this is our reason to live. To love our God, this is our highest call. In worship, in life, in all we do, may we love you. May we have the courage, too, to love those whom you love. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Long before Harry and Megan, long before Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, or Beyonce and Jay-Z, long before John Lennon and Yoko Ono, long before Johnny Cash 
and June Connor, even before Sonny and Cher, there was Abraham and Sarah. This is the first couple of our faith. And they were minded their own business in probably a lovely large town called Ur when God came a-knocking. Abram, Sarah, move from your country and your kin, and you will go to a place that I have prepared for you. And you will have many children, and you will be the nation I lift up, God's peculiar treasure. They said nothing. They picked, uh, pitched their uh, tents, and they started traveling. Years went by. God's dream upon their hearts. Time passed. They even took a detour to Egypt. No child. They begin to become prosperous, are good at trading. They even become wealthy. No child. They have a nephew, Lot, who gets captured by the enemies. No child. A very, a very painful 25 years have passed, and Jesus comes back, I mean, God, Yahweh, comes back to them. Do not be afraid, says God to Abram and Sarah. Now, every time God or an angel says, do not be afraid, that means good news is a coming. That means something good is about to happen. But in this exchange that we heard from Helen today, from three chapters later from the original call, this is the first time that actually Abraham speaks back. We finally start hearing for Abraham. And Abraham has some questions. Now you remember last week I talked about the questions we should ask ourselves. Abraham now has some questions for God. God, I've got some questions for you. We've been traveling. We've been doing all this stuff. You've called us. We were minding our own business and we're very comfortable. And you get us to travel for the sake of the world but we have no child and I'm 99 years old. I don't have it in me, God. And he asked God a few other things and God finally, like Cheryl says, took Abraham out, told him to look at the stars and said, you're, he expands the promise. He says, you're, you're not just going to have a, a few children. You're going to have a nation full of people. Now, what we hear from Abraham is a gift for Lent that Abraham wants to give you and to me. And you know what that gift is? That is the gift of lament and honesty. God does not uh, reprove or discipline Abraham for asking him very hard questions about God's end of the bargain. Just like when God calls you to a dream when you're minding your own business and things don't go quite right in your dream, you can ask God questions as well. God, I love the gift of lament. I love the fact that God can take our anger and our frustration and our disappointment because I don't know if your life is anything like mine, but every now and then I encounter brokenness, broken dreams, broken thoughts. It's like, God, I thought 
if I responded to you, things would turn out differently. We thought this would happen. What I love about the gift of lament is that when we lament and we complain to God, and the people in Scripture who lament and complain to God are those who are closest to God, they're making a faith statement about what they believe and who they believe God is. When I lament, lament and complain to God, I, my problems become God's problems. I don't have to hold all of my problems with me. I don't have to carry the burden of my disappointments and frustrations. And my lament and honesty and complaint to God is a sign that I do believe God will respond. And God does respond. In the book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, I'm reading through that. It's a great book, it is, and, and I, I highly recommend it to you. Um, part of one of the chapters in the book is that, you know, we have emotion, we have feelings, we are true human beings, and we're called, uh, that's part of who we are. Our emotions, uh, they're, they're not things we should ignore or suppress. They're actually lights on our dashboard that, that God's telling us to pay attention to something. Jerry Sitzer um, had sort of an unthinkable thing happen to his family uh, in the book. It uh, um, talk, they talks about an, a car accident that took three generations away from him. His mom, um, uh, his, uh, his daughter, and his granddaughter in a, in a horrific wreck caused by a drunk driver. And he writes um, in, uh, in this book, he says, uh, he processes his grief. And after years upon years upon years of dealing with this and talking to God and giving God his frustration, his disappointment about this horrific loss, he writes this. It is therefore true that we become less, it is therefore not true that we become less uh, through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less. Loss can also make us more. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss in my life like soil receives decaying matter until it became part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. The soul, he writes, is like elastic, like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Indeed, even in Scripture, when we encounter deep, deep loss or darkness, God is there. Isaiah 45.3 says this, I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. The author of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship says this, and take note of this. He says, learning to become and hold sorrow and grief before God is central to the work of discipleship. Now, isn't that ironic and odd that even the darkness that you hold, the disappointments and the frustration, that this is essential, central and essential to the work of discipleship. Now, our culture is, uh, the temptation is, is to ignore that, right? Pay attention to your success. It's sort of the Facebook model, right? Pay attention to success. Ignore loss and pain. Pay attention to your highlights. 
Ignore your broken heart, parts of your heart that are broken. It's sort of like the Dr. Phil show of life, right? Let's just turn every worship and church experience in a, into a 22-minute Dr. Phil show where people have problems. 22 minutes later, everything turns out all right. We know that's not how it works. People need an opportunity to grieve. Think about Mother's Day and Father's Day in our churches. How a lot of people don't attend on those two days. Why? Because there's parts of them that are so broken and so hurt that they don't want to come and hear a glib sermon or a theme about that. It's because we're so tempted to ignore pain and loss. Chuck Poole, who's a Baptist preacher, retired Baptist preacher in Jackson, says, people do not get up on Sunday morning, get dressed, get in their cars, and come to church so they can be, that they can be told cheerful-sounding things that will not stand up and prove true in life's toughest arenas. People want honesty. And so Abraham gives us this gift. God, what's wrong? There's, what's going on? Life does not make sense to me, God. How are you going to do it? And God brings Abraham and Sarah in with this vision. God does not push them away. But how do we do it? How do you lament when it's time to lament? Y'all remember that scene in Steel Magnolias when Sally Fields just unloads in the cemetery on all of her friends? I couldn't show a clip of it because there's too many expletives in it, but it is such a powerful and beautiful example of what it means to vent and unload and call it like you see it instead of pretending like everything is, is perfect in our life and in our world. We don't tell our Ukrainian brothers and sisters to don't worry, be happy, everything will be fine. We weep with them with the killing and the violence going through. We hurt with them. We sit on the mourning bench just as they did in those um, uh, camp, campsites and those revivals where there was a mourning bench and people could sit and mourn. So how do we lament? How do you and I get the most out of this opportunity? How do we be like Abraham and Sarah and ask God some tough questions? So here are a couple of thoughts. So here's really three things we can do. First of all, pay attention to your pain. Don't ignore it. Pay attention. Don't bury your pain alive as it will always come back out. At a men's retreat a few weeks ago, the leader said, what we cover, God uncovers. What we uncover, God covers with grace. Pay attention to your pain. The second thing is this, and I think I heard it in the song too, and I can't remember how it was sung today in the anthem, but embrace the weight. Embrace the weight. Sometimes we, we forget that it took Abraham and Sarah 25 years for that dream to come true. Embrace the weight. It took God's people 40 years to get through the wilderness. And when they were captured by Babylon, Bab uh, the country Babylon, they were there for 72 years, more than two generations before they got back to the promised land. Embrace the weight. Tertullian says it this way in a negative sense. It's going to sound negative, but I think it's still good. He says, uh, and he was an early church uh, theologian and bishop. He said, 
For to put it in a nutshell, every sin is to be traced back to impatience. I find the origin of impatience in the devil himself. Impatience. Sit with your pain. Embrace the weight. Barbara Brown Taylor, Episcopal priest, says it this way in a more positive sense. I have learned things in the dark I could never have learned in the light. Things that saved my life over and over again so that there really is only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. She said that in learning to walk in the dark. I know I'm, this sermon's kind of full of lists, and I, forgive me for that. I'm not a list kind of preacher, but this is, this is good. But we need to slow down and really think about this. And, um, but here, and, and this is from Healthy Discipleship, there are four questions that might help you lament better, improve your lamentation. Here it is. One, ask yourself, what am I angry about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? And what am I glad about? Really easy four questions. And then give that to God. I, somebody, somebody at, my, uh, at, at the church I grew up in, you know, they, would, they, they did a lot of prayers. And they were a lay person, but they would always say, let's give our troubles to God as we go to God in prayer. Let's, she said, take it to the cross. Um, I am. Let me just say this real quickly, and then I'm gonna go to the last one. I promise you. You can leave that up there, though. Leave that. Leave that up there. I am so happy. My, now, my church when I grew up was not perfect. It was just as imperfect and broken as any church there is on the face of the earth. But you know what I loved about my home church, and I don't know if it was the preachers or it was the lay people in Brookhaven. I don't know. But they let me ask really hard questions when I was growing up, like. They let me really kind of put God, ask some really tough stuff. They didn't say, no, Bruce, we don't, this is God's house, you shouldn't do that. And you know, that was one of the best. They, give, they gave me the gift of Abraham and Sarah. They were teaching me, I think, how to lament. Anyway, I'm sorry. The, the, the third thing on the list is this. Allow for the birth of the new in your lament. Allow for the birth of new. God has always revealed something to me in my lament. When I've really done the Sally Fields thing with God, if I've done my steel magnolias thing right with God, right, and gotten really honest, I've always learned something about God. And most of the time, what I've learned about God is that God loves me just as much when I'm angry and disappointed as when I'm having a good day. But maybe God will reveal something maybe more uh, bigger to you than that. God also reveals something about myself, right? Like when I take the mask off and I'm good at being honest with God as Abraham was that day, it's like I'm being my real self and I learn something about me. Because when I'm hiding something, that's really not me, you know? When somebody asks me, Bruce, how are you doing? What, are you, what do I say nine times out of ten? Great. Does that mean I'm doing great? No, it does not. It means sometimes on my worst days when I'm really trying to hide something, I don't think, I'm not sure if you'll love me if I tell you exactly how I feel. I'm not sure if you'll accept me if I tell you what's going on in my life. And I know what's true for me is what's true for you. Someone once told me, don't ever ask anybody how they're doing. Ask them how they're feeling. 
it's hard to it's harder to lie for that question, right? How I'm feeling? Oh, well. How are we, how am I doing? Um, the last thing I think is um, allow something to be born into the new is that lamenting reveals something to me about this world, and usually this world astonishes me. If, even after I get my anger and my brokenness off my chest to God, God shows me something beautiful about this world. Um, Rumi, an ancient uh, uh, theologian, once said, sell your clever by wonder. Quit trying to be so clever and allow yourself to be wondered by the world. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great thing. Okay, finally, this is the part that Cheryl didn't want to talk to with the kids. So now we're going to get into the violence of all this. All these cut animals. Wasn't that strange? Did that sound strange to you? Well, we're about to sell a house here in a few weeks. And it's, you know, you have to sign about 1,900 sheets of paper, right? Put your initials here. Sign your life away there. There you go. This means you're going to lose everything. You know, whatever. Um, well, they didn't have contracts, right? They had covenants. And... Um, and so after God expands the promise and says, look at the stars, it's going to be even bigger than you thought, good news. He calls Abraham faithful. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what that's about. I'm not sure where Abraham was faithful. Maybe it's like you were faithful enough to, for, to, to be honest with me about your life. Thank you. I don't, know what, I don't know what that's about. But he called him faithful. And then he cuts a covenant. Go find these animals. Cut it up. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment a bunch of dead animals right around this aisle, right here, this center aisle going out. Imagine half a heifer on one side and half a heifer on another and all these animals right there. Now, back in the day, and this was even, even predates Israel, um, this was an ancient thing. You cut animals open, you walked through it, the realtor would come in, make sure, no, I'm just kidding, the realtor wouldn't do that. But anyway, you would walk, and if, and if I was making a covenant with Cheryl, Cheryl would get on the, on the end over there, and I would start right here, and we would walk together in opposite ways and end up on the other side. And if Cheryl and I made a, some sort of a business agreement, what I'm telling Cheryl is, if I don't live up to my word, Cheryl, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's kind of weird, isn't it? It's, um, I guess I'd rather sign a lot of papers, to tell you the truth, but... Uh, um, but notice God initiates this. God sets the terms. God makes the promises. God even decides the stakes. But notice even more. God walked the line alone. God did not ask Abraham or Sarah to walk it. Now that's a little strange. Back in uh, Jeremiah 34... There was a big cut things in half and make a covenant when in the promised land um, uh, Babylon was coming to uh, maraud the, uh, uh, God's people and the, those who enslaved people in the promised land realized that that was a wrong thing to do. And so they were about to cut covenant with all those slaves and they did it. But then Babylon backed off. And guess what? Guess what those slave owners said? Hey, we had our fingers crossed, and come on back. And they re-enslaved these people. And in Jeremiah 34, it says in not very pretty terms, hey, slave owners, that's, those animals, that's what's going to happen to you. 
so they, they renegotiated, I guess, that. Um, now, here's the deal as we are in Lent. Here's why I love this. It's almost like God is saying, maybe it is what God is saying, I'm taking responsibility for the, for the mess we're in. If anybody breaks, it will be me. If anybody dies, it will be me. I'm going to walk this alone, Abraham, because you can trust me. I bet my life on this. And then, couple after couple after couple after couple, generation after generation after generation after generation, we almost see in Jesus the echo of this covenant. It's almost like Jesus said, I'll walk this. This one's on me. I'm not going to punish you for things that go wrong, for promises that seem so delayed that they'll never get here. I'll pick up the tab. I'll pay the price. Jesus walked to Jerusalem, and his march to Jerusalem was God saying, let me take responsibility. Let me take your lament. Let me take it to the cross where I will show you I meant what I said. God is faithful. We said it when we started the worship, right? God keeps his promises. God does not break his promises even when the promises break God. God is faithful. The creator ultimately took on human flesh, walked down the lonely path, and died. He did so for you and for me. This gift is so inexplicable, it doesn't make any sense. It makes so little sense that for 20 centuries between that time, there have been theory after theory about the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ. There are many in the Bible. I don't know which one might mean the most to you. To me, it's always thinking of like, is Jesus like revealing the very character and heart of God for me in this world? Does God dying on a cross, does it, does it symbolize that God is done destroying us and is ready to reconcile all things? That, to me, is my theory of atonement. See, you, get, you start explaining it away. It's like, it's like dissecting a frog, you know, in the eighth grade. I don't know if you did that. Did y'all do that in the eighth? I did it. Anyway, does it, you know, once you do that, you really don't have a frog anymore. You just have a dead toad, you know, on the wall. But you don't have to understand it. I don't understand love at all, really. But I do understand it enough to receive it. I do understand it enough to know that I was created by love, in love, and for love. I do understand God loved the world so much that he gave. Who cares if I can't explain the technical theory behind it? All I need to do is receive it. We worship a suffering God who walked the line for this world. And that means everything to me. My prayers and complaints do not go up to outer space and just in the midst. It lands in the arms of a relentlessly loving God. And that, when I lament, is really good news.
Let us pray. God, thank you so much for loving us, even when we have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> even when we complain and lament. Thank you, Lord, for not lecturing Abraham for doing it, but for loving him enough to double down on his promise that every one of your promises do indeed, in time, come true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Invite us.